managing my assets late one night when my eyes beheld a dreadful sight the economy began to destabilize and suddenly to my surprise the market crash it was a monster crash a monster crash no one could borrow cash the market crash it collapsed in a flash the market crash it was a monster crash from the corner office and executive suite to the trading floor and throughout Wall Street everybody came from their humble abodes to salvage what they could while the system implodes the market crash it was a monster crash a monster crash Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this first day of March, 2009. I'd like to welcome all my listeners and invite them all, as always, to check into the websites, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos conducted and created by the Corbett Report in the past, and alqaedadoesntexist.com, where you can find out more about our forthcoming, upcoming, and still-coming documentary, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. I'd like to take a moment, as always, to thank those listeners who have helped support the Corbett Report by using the Donate button on the front page of CorbettReport.com to send us an electronic payment, and I'd like to assure you that all of those funds are very much appreciated as they are extremely helpful for us in continuing to conduct our operations, and I'd like to ask all of those listeners who listen on a regular basis but have not yet done so to consider contributing some money to the Corbett Report through the Donate button as the time for renewing our domain and our hosting for the year is coming up, and that is an increasingly expensive process. So again, all contributions are welcome and appreciated. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from the Corbett Report, 27th of February, 2009. Announcing the DNA control grid. Mainstream news finally revealing government ownership of public's DNA. Recent weeks have seen a string of revelations in mainstream publications that there are plans for a North American Union, a world government, and a new world order, including a world central bank with the power to knock heads if nations refuse to surrender their authority to an elite group of international bankers, exactly as we predicted. Add to these startling admissions the Austin American statesman's recent discovery of the state of Texas's practice of keeping blood collected at birth for scientific research purposes without the knowledge or consent of parents. As bad as it sounds, the Statesman article is in itself a whitewash. The blood is collected not only for scientific research purposes, but also for a DNA database, which in itself is slowly being announced to the public. The blood, or more importantly, the genetic information it contains, is stored not for a few months, as the article implies, but indefinitely. It is not stored by state or public laboratories, but private companies, it is not merely a statewide program or even a nationwide program, but an international one. It has been in operation for over 40 years, and now 
thanks to recent biomedical advances, the public is starting to learn that their very DNA may be the property of a few private companies. When stated in one concise paragraph, the monstrous nature of such a system is laid bare. When introduced piece by piece over a number of years by well-meaning but ill-informed local reporters, however, such a system can be accepted by the public. This, of course, is part of the process of indoctrination by which any unthinkable idea, such as world government by an elite group of bankers or DNA databases under private control, can be made to seem a perfectly natural development. Our second real news story today comes from The Raw Story at rawstory.com, February 27th, 2009. Kucinich hits Iraq withdrawal. You can't be in and out. It wasn't even one year ago when Senator John McCain and members of his political campaign said now President Barack Obama seems to think losing a war will help him win an election. Which is what makes this week's announcement of and the fallout from President Obama's plan to withdraw troops from Iraq so surprising. It isn't the opposition party Obama must now win over, it's his own political allies. Senator McCain and top Republican leaders actually support the Democratic administration's plan, while some top Democrats have openly criticized it. Congressman Dennis Kucinich, himself a former presidential candidate, hit back Friday against a portion of Obama's plan which would leave 35 to 50,000 observer soldiers in the country. You can't be in and out at the same time, said Kucinich in a media advisory. America must determine at some point to end the occupation, close the bases, and bring the troops home, he said. We must bring a conclusion to this sorry chapter in American history where war was waged under false pretenses against an innocent people. Taking troops out of Iraq should not mean more troops available for deployment in other operations. Today's final real news story comes from telegraph.co.uk, February 19th, 2009. MEPs walk out when Vaclav Klaus questions European integration. I've just witnessed one of the most unintentionally hilarious scenes ever to have been played out in the European Parliament. Vaclav Klaus was addressing the chamber as president of the Czech Republic, the state that currently holds the EU presidency. His speech was moderate, thoughtful, and restrained, in places almost to the point of being platitudinous. Governments worked better when there was an opposition, he said. We should all listen to dissenting points of view, he said. He had grown up in a system where there was no opposition, he said, and he didn't want the EU to go down that road. The response of MEPs? To hoot their derision and flounce out. By a delicious coincidence, the walkout happened just as Klaus was making his point about listening to opinions you disagreed with. It may have been an accident of timing, the vinegary Thatcherite had, moments earlier, been arguing that democracy was not necessarily enhanced by giving more powers to the European Parliament. Perhaps the walkout was a delayed response to that implied slight, or perhaps the simultaneous interpretation was taking a while to catch up. But the effect was that, when Klaus made his anodyne plea for tolerance, MEPs responded by shouting, Shut up! and storming out of the chamber. 
What a perfect symbol of the entire European enterprise. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 76 of the Corbett Report. Meet the Real Economists. Now, that title was chosen for the sake of brevity, because, in fact, many of the traditional economists are the self-same people who got us into the current financial crisis in the first place, having a vested interest in the system itself, and a lot of them being compartmentalized so that they can't see the monetary reality forest for the financial wizardry trees. So any real accounting of the people who have been proven correct in their prognostications, forecasts, and predictions about the economy and the way it would unfold would have to include economic analysts, researchers, authors, politicians, and, of course, cartoon scriptwriters. Attention, citizens! Due to the financial irresponsibility and incompetence of your leaders, Cobra has found it necessary to restructure your nation's economy. We have begun by eliminating the worthless green paper which your government has deceived you into believing is valuable. Cobra will come to your rescue and out of the ashes will arrive a new order. Citizens of the United States, I am pleased to announce COBRA's economic recovery plan. If you want money to buy food for your children, take all your valuables to the nearest branch of Extensive Enterprises. There, all goods will be exchanged for COBRA currency. Yes, that is real, and yes, it did actually come from the 1980s G.I. Joe cartoon. And in the 1980s G.I. Joe cartoon, we were warned that when we heard people talking about a new financial order being created by the remonetization of the wealth of a country in order to pay off a debt created by paper-based fiat money, we know they are the enemy and should be resisted. Parse that one, if you will. At any rate, that comes from a trailer from a forthcoming documentary entitled Mindbender, which is proposing to look at how Cobra Commander and the Cobra organization in the G.I. Joe cartoon is suspiciously similar to the cave-dwelling terrorist that we were introduced to in this decade. Again, there are two trailers online for that documentary, and I suggest my listeners check them out because they are extremely interesting and do bring up some very interesting parallels between the situation happening today with the shadowy Al-Qaeda network and the situation in the G.I. Joe cartoon. The parallels are actually quite stunning. So please check that out by following the link from the documentation section. And I look forward to the release of that documentary, hopefully in time for the release of the new live-action movie, G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra. At any rate, the point of today's episode is to introduce people, or reintroduce them, to the economic analysts who were consistently shunned by the corporate-controlled media 
in the run-up to this current financial crisis, despite the fact that they have been ringing the alarm consistently for years, and in some cases decades, on the destructive financial policies of the financial oligarchs who are really running the U.S. government. Now, to say that these people were ignored by the corporate-controlled media in the run-up to this crisis would be something of an understatement, but perhaps wouldn't even get to the very gist of what's happening. Let's take a look at a couple of examples of how these types of people are treated in the corporate-controlled media. And the first one occurred very recently, in fact, this week. It comes from an article from Infowars.net under the headline, CNBC anchors mortified that Ron Paul was allowed airtime. This is not going as planned. From Thursday, February 26, 2009. Quote, CNBC anchors were left dumbfounded and acted overtly cantankerous yesterday after Congressman Ron Paul's opening statement at the House Financial Services Committee was broadcast live to an audience of millions. CNBC went live to the House, clearly without knowing that the Texas congressman had the initial Republican statement at the hearing of the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. After the congressman spent two and a half minutes lecturing Bernanke on sound money principles, warning that the financial crisis cannot be solved by merely creating credit out of thin air, CNBC cut back to the studio. Anchors Aaron Burnett and Mark Haynes were so perturbed by what they had just heard that they immediately cut to a commercial break. End quote. Let's take a listen to the audio of that moment from CNBC on February 26th, 2009. Yesterday, a report came out that said that the uh, consumer uh, competence index was down to 25. Sometimes I think that might be overly optimistic, but uh, ne nevertheless, um, I think that vote of confidence really is a reflection on our financial system, our monetary policy, our spending policies here in Congress, and uh, it then they see it in the economy. But, but it is uh, fundamental for us to understand this, because if we think we can patch a system up that failed, it, it's not going to work. We have to come to the realization that there is a sea change in what's happening. This is an end of an era and that we can't reinflate the bubble. Just as we devised a new system of Bretton Woods in 44, which was doomed to fail, uh, it failed in 71, and then we came up with the dollar reserve standard, which was a paper standard, it was doomed to fail, and we have to recognize that it has failed. And if we think we can reinflate this bubble by artificially creating credit out of thin air and calling it capital, believe me, we don't have a prayer of solving these problems. We have a total misunderstanding of what credit is versus capital. Capital can't come from the thin air creation uh, by a Federal Reserve System. Capital has to come from savings. We have to work hard, produce, live within our means, and what is left over is called capital. This whole idea that we can recapitalize markets by merely turning on the printing presses and increasing credit is a total fallacy. So the sooner we wake up to realize that a new system has to be devised, the better. Right now, I think the central bankers of the world realize exactly what I'm talking about, and they're planning. But they're planning another system that goes one step further to internationalize regulations, internationalize the printing press, give up on the dollar standard, but, tell, uh, but we have to be very much aware that that system will be no more viable. We have to have a system which encourages people to work and to save. 
what do we do now? We're telling consumers to spend and continue the old process. It won't work. The gentleman from Delaware, Mr. Castle, is recognized for two minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and, and Ranking Member Backus, and I want to, to thank you for holding uh, today's hearing and to thank... Uh, All right, um, this is not going as planned. No, it is not. We were... <laughs> we were... Here's we were told it, it would be a very limited number of opening statements, uh, and it seems to be getting out of control. Here's what we forgot. Everybody's taking this live. You know what that means? That means Why would they, they miss an opportunity be, uh... for free airtime? Right, so what? We, we're taking a break. We're going to take a commercial break, get them out of the way, so that when something really substantive is happening, we don't have to interrupt them. Now, of course, long-term listeners to the Corbett Report will need no introduction to Ron Paul, who has been consistently on target and on message for the past, well, the entirety of his political career, really, consistently stating the problems with fiat money printed by the Federal Reserve out of nothing and how it could lead to nothing but the type of bubble and then collapse which we are seeing unfold right now in the markets today in 2009. So regardless of the fact that he was completely right and has been absolutely consistent with his message for the entire time he's been in Congress, the mainstream controlled corporate media still continues to not only ignore him, but deride him whenever he accidentally ends up on a major network like CNBC. Of course, for those who would like to find out more about Dr. Ron Paul, his work, or his political activities, one would be advised to check into campaignforliberty.com where you can follow a lot of Ron Paul-related news. And, of course, that's a great way to keep up with what the latest news regarding the collapse of the economy. Unfortunately, the controlled corporate media's tendency to ignore experts like Dr. Paul are not limited to Ron Paul. Of course, the controlled corporate media often ignores the real experts and analysts who have been right for many years regarding the current crisis, and in the past, when these types of people have been on mainstream network news, it's generally as a type of comic relief where the other commentators were able to make fun of their naysaying in the midst of so much wealth creation which was happening in the middle part of this decade. An excellent example of this comes from someone who has not been featured on the Corbett Report podcast before, but who I'm sure many of my listeners will already be familiar with, and that is Peter Schiff, the president of Euro-Pacific Capital, which can be found at europac.net. Now, Peter Schiff has become something of an economic analyst celebrity as of late, given his incredible rise to fame and prominence on video sharing sites like YouTube, where he has amassed quite a following of people who are supportive of his message, which again has been consistently on target and has been consistently proven to have been correct all along. And, of course, that message is that creating money out of nothing is not the way to solve this economic crisis. And, in fact, the all of the wealth creation in the middle part of this decade and earlier was just fictitious funny money, which had no bearing and no relation to the health and soundness of the economy. Now, one indication of how incredibly popular Mr. Schiff has become as of late comes from a website called Schiff2010.com, which is attempting to draft Peter Schiff for the U.S. Senate and is launching a grassroots internet-based campaign to get money and support behind a Peter Schiff U.S. Senate race. 
It's a very interesting site and, of course, filled with Peter Schiff commentary and opinions. But today, as a way of introducing Mr. Schiff to my listeners, I'd like to feature an excellent video that's making the rounds on YouTube and indeed has been viewed a total of 1.2 million times so far. The video is entitled, Peter Schiff Was Right, 2006-2007, Second Edition. And it's a compilation of appearances by Peter Schiff on mainstream Fox News, CNBC-type programs, where he was brought on as a guest analyst and derided by everyone, from the host to the other guests, for his naysaying about the soundness of the economy. Of course, in retrospect, it's extremely enlightening to see how every one of the so-called economic analysts and experts that the mainstream corporate-controlled media had on their programs was 100% wrong in their assessment of the overall health of the economy, and Peter Schiff was absolutely correct and vindicated by time. Does that mean that Peter Schiff is being given more shrift by the corporate-controlled media these days? Well, hardly. But let's take a listen to this clip to see once again how the corporate-controlled media, even when they do feature people who are giving the hard and uncomfortable truths about the economy, will deride and laugh at that person until he is proven absolutely correct. Recession or not, we're going to be joined by Art Laffer. He's chief investment officer of Laffer Investments and former economic advisor to... President Reagan and Peter Schiff. He's president of Euro Pacific Capital. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Peter, I want to start with you. Although there are more and more people saying that the U.S. economy will be in a recession next year, it is still a minority position. Why do you think that a recession is coming? Just how bad is it going to be? I think it's going to be pretty bad, and whether it starts in 07 or 08, I think, is immaterial. And I also think it's going to last not just for quarters, but for years. See, the basic problem with the U.S. economy is we have too much a consumption and, and borrowing and not enough production and savings. And what's going to happen is the American consumer is basically going to stop consuming and start rebuilding his savings, especially when he sees his home equity evaporate. And when you have the economy 70% consumption, you can't address those imbalances without a recession. You know, rather than the recession being resisted, it should really be embraced because the disease is all this debt finance consumption. Huh. The cure is that we stop consuming and start saving and producing again, and that's a recession. And sometimes, you know, medicine tastes bad, but you've got to swallow it. Art Laffer, you hear him, he says the consumer's going to slow down in order to rebuild the savings, and you know that two-thirds of the American economy is driven by the consumer. Do you believe that? No, I don't believe any of it whatsoever, Michelle, excuse me. But, you know, what he's saying is that savings is way down in this country, but wealth has risen dramatically. The United States economy has never been better shape. There is no tax increase coming in the next couple of years. Monetary policy is spectacular. We have freer trade than ever before. And not only that, but there are no incomes policies things here. I, I think Peter is just totally off base, and I don't think it's going to be... I mean, I, I just don't know where he's getting his stuff. The well, one of us is, one of us is off base, but it's, it's definitely not me. I mean, it's not wealth that's increased in the last few years. We haven't increased our productive capacity. All that's increased is the paper values of our stocks and real estate. But that's not real wealth, no more than the NASDAQ was wealth. When, when you see the stock market come down and the real estate bubble burst, all that phony wealth is going to evaporate. And all well, that's going to be left is all the debt that we accumulated to foreigners. Peter, uh, I'm going to take a that. bet with you on this one. I'll, I'll bet you a penny on this one that if you'll sign a letter saying that if you're wrong, you'll, you'll sign a letter that you were wrong to me in this. But you're just way off base. There is nothing out there 
that tells us we're going to have a nice slowdown, but it's not going to be a All right, crash. let me ask you this. I'll a lot you of a lot folks out there point... Big question. Will homes be worth more or less in 2007? Tom, what do you think? You're going to see uh, prices go up about 10%. Here's why. Because you're going to come into a regular, normal market, and a regular, normal market, that's about what kind of appreciation you get. The is home prices up 10% in the coming year. Peter, what do you say? Well, today's home prices are completely unsustainable. They were bid up to these artificial heights by a combination of temporarily low adjustable rate mortgage payments, by a complete you know, absence of any lending standards, and by speculative buying. And what's going to happen in 2007 is a lot of these artificially low arm payments are going to re be reset upward. You're going to start to see uh, both the government and the lenders <coughs> reimposing lending standards and tightening up on credit. And you're going to see a lot of the speculative buyers turn into sellers. And these sky-high real estate prices are going to come crashing back down to earth. I, I, first of all, I have no idea what Peter Schiff is talking about. I agree with Tom. I think they're going to be up, probably up to about 10%. What artificial lending standard are you talking about? What's word to Peter? Most of the profits that people have in real estate are going to vanish, just like the profits in the, in the, in the dot-coms <laughs> in 1999-2000. It's a fantasy. People can't sell their house. The inventories are exploding all over the country. Houses are on the market for six months a year, there's no bidders. So, uh, the price right. is going to fall through the floor. You guys I, are deluding yourself. We heard, it, we heard it loud and clear from all of our panelists. We thank you very much. Einstein, you say this could be a perfect storm for buyers. What do you mean? I mean that the uh, credit crunch is way overblown. Uh, the financials are being uh, given away. They're so unbelievably cheap. Uh, the uh, Many of the resource companies have gotten really whacked and are cheap at this point. Uh, the, the, the credit, the prime time, sorry, not prime time, the subprime problem is a problem, but it's a tiny problem in the context of this economy. The storm is a problem, but it's a tiny problem. Meanwhile, it's as if nuclear war has struck the financials and really struck the whole market. It's a buying opportunity, especially for the financials, maybe that I've never seen before in my entire life. Trace, this is just getting started. It's not just subprime. You know, this is a problem for the entire mortgage industry. It's not just people with bad credit that committed to mortgages they can't afford. It's not just people with bad credit who are going to see their home equity vanish. And it's not limited to mortgage credit. Americans are going to have a difficult time borrowing money to buy cars, to buy furniture, to buy appliances. You know, foreigners around the world have been lending us money for years. They're now finding out that we can't afford to repay. This is going to be an enormous credit crunch. The party is over for the United States. We cannot continue borrowing to live beyond our means and, and consuming foreign products. It's you must over be a left right at a party. Huh? No, I'm pretty fun at no, okay, parties. Okay. I don't know. I don't right. talk about this. But, uh, down. We, we have, but subprime is tiny. Subprime is a tiny, tiny it, blip. It's not <laughs> tiny. And again, it's not just subprime. It's the entire mortgage market. Right? Every, All right. Well, Tracy, you're, you're disagreeing. You're simply wrong. Well, you're simply wrong about that. No, I'm not. Pete, you're simply to, wrong. To Ben's yeah. point. Well, the faults for the whole mortgage market are tiny. No, but it's good. just give it time. Wait till all these mortgages reset. Wait till people realize. Well, so, you're saying, okay, so you're saying it's going to be yet to come. Charles, you were just speaking. What do you think? I think volatility is going to be here until we can look at the books of major financials. So that means until okay. the next round of earnings. But I think the worst is over. Ben. Well, I, I think stocks will be a heck of a lot higher a year from now than they are now. Tracy. Yeah, but we have more volatility to go, at least through September. Stuart, the big banks, the central banks, still have plenty of big guns to fire. They'll fire them when necessary. The worst is over. Peter, you know, I guess razor blades are in order? The worst is yet to come. The fundamentals are not sound. They're awful. If the fundamentals were sound, we wouldn't be having these problems. <laughs> oh, so you think that those bizarre derivatives and exotic financial instruments that represent an abstraction of an abstraction of an abstraction based on debt don't represent real wealth?
Oh, what a silly man you are. Go back to your hole. Once again, the best place for Peter Schiff-related information is Schiff2010.com. Now, of course, by this point, it's self-evident to anyone except for those in the corporate-controlled media that the bubble has been inflated with fiat money combined with a lack of regulation, which has led to the rise of these bizarre financial instruments, which never represented anything in the real, actual, physical economy, but somehow we were led to believe represented some great amassing of wealth over the past couple of decades. Of course, this was sheer fantasy, and that's, of course, evident now to all. But the question is, what is the bigger picture? To answer that question, let's turn once again to another person who has been featured on the Corbett Report podcast in the past, but who just this week appeared on the Financial Sense NewsHour podcast at financialsense.com, and that's G. Edward Griffin. Now, G. Edward Griffin has been talking about the problem of an imaginary economy for quite some time, for the better part of half a century, to be precise. So, it shouldn't be surprising to my listeners that his 1994 book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve, predicted exactly what we're witnessing today, with a bubble inflated with fiat money being popped, causing mass financial panic, and of course, public bailouts. So let's listen to Jim Poplava of the Financial Sense NewsHour interviewing G. Edward Griffin to find out more about the bigger picture of what's really involved in this current financial meltdown and what the stakes really are. But yet, if you take a look at uh, this crisis right now, you've seen world leaders from the Prime Minister of Australia, you've seen uh, members in Europe, and even the Financial Times that are talking about this new world order that you talk about in your book. In fact, the Financial Times has been running a series of articles, including prominent financiers like George Soros, that are talking about the time for a global government, global currency, and a global central bank, since the current crisis we're experiencing right now is global. Therefore, we need global institutions to handle it. Well, what they're saying makes a certain amount of sense to somebody that doesn't understand what's really been going on. What they're really saying is that the collectivism and the control of the money supply politically has failed in all of these countries. So, therefore, the solution is to institute collectivism and the control of the money supply by an international government. In other words, make the problem bigger and worse. That's what they're proposing. But since most people don't know what the real cause of it is, that they could be led to think that the only cause of the problem is because it's national and not international. But, you know, if you're doing something wrong at the national level, then doing it even more so at the international level is not going to solve the problem. And basically that's what these people are advocating. We uh, simply institutionalize all of the problems that we've had, put them at an international level so that there can be no escape. As it is now, theoretically, if we don't like what's happening to the American dollar, we can uh, take our money and we can buy Japanese yen or Deutschmarks or something else that maybe is doing better, like a Swiss franc or something. But once it's internationalized, then there's no escape for anybody. You've got an international currency, an international uh, central bank, And that's it, brother. You're stuck. Indeed, Mr. Griffin does an excellent job of laying out the problem in that interview. 
And I would recommend that interview specifically to my audience quite wholeheartedly, as it does contain a wide-ranging conversation that touches on such diverse topics as Maurice Strong and the report from Iron Mountain. Again, very informative interview. And a lot of it is based on the current financial panic, and to that end, of course, comes across as somewhat bleak. Indeed, there's no easy way out of a financial panic that has been created because of a system that is completely imaginary. And no matter whether the money supply is now expanded or contracted, the end result is going to be pain for the average citizen. So, once again, we come to the point where we have to start looking for something approaching a solution to this problem. Of course, there is never going to be an easy silver bullet which is going to take care of the problem in one deft blow but there is something that can be done in fact must be done if we are to have any chance whatsoever of coming out of this with our freedoms liberties and economic health intact let's turn now to a different part of that interview with g edward griffin on financialsense.com you know, as you look forward in, in your last chapter, you talk about ways that this can be reversed. Are we on a one-way highway towards this? I mean, have we gone too far? Can we reverse it? Because certainly, I mean, you, you just listened to the new administration, the president talking about free health care, $800 billion in stimulus. We just passed the House today. It just came across my Bloomberg screen. Just passed a $410 billion new spending supplement program. You know, so once again, I mean, can we reverse it at this point, or, or is it too late? Well, I don't think it's too late, but I have to say it's very, very, very late. The locomotive is running in full force in the opposite direction, isn't it? It's going to take quite some time to slow that locomotive down and to reverse its direction. But right now, the, the train is going toward more and more government to do more of the very things that created the problem. But what's it going to take to slow that train down and reverse it? It's going to take a tremendous awakening of the American people. And that's why we're working so hard, as we do, Jim, in our organization called Freedom Force International. We're dedicated to awakening the people, not only of this country, but around the world, as to the cause, the true cause of these problems. It's collectivism. It's not just fraud. It's not just stupidity. It's a conscious effort on the part of leaders in most countries to consciously create this thing called collectivism, the ultimate state control where the individual is, is a servant of the state instead of the other way around where the state is supposed to be the servant of the people. The leaders of the world today are hell-bent to do just the opposite. They want the state to be supreme, people to be in line and to be controlled and to do what they're told and to be passive about the whole thing. Well, we've got to reach the people. We've got to instill in them the resolve and then show them how to throw these rascals out that are running the show in government positions and replace them with people who have a different point of view. That's our mission. It can be done. Now, will it be done? I cannot say. I think eventually it will. It probably won't be done in my lifetime. I'm I'm 77 years old now. I don't know how much longer I'm going to go, but certainly not more than, you know, 15, 20 years or something like that. I don't think it's going to happen that soon. We've got to stop thinking in terms of, well, can we change this for the next election or the election after that? The forces that we're talking about have so much momentum. I think it's going to take a generation or two. 
but it can be done, and the sooner we start, the sooner it's going to happen. A generation or two is certainly a long time, but realistically speaking, that's what it's going to take. And of course, I wholeheartedly agree with Mr. Griffin's assessment that it is going to take a mass awakening to the reality of the economic system and a mass awakening to the fact that only economic freedom can bring with it the ability to create a sound economy. Again, this is a fact that is not immediately evident, and especially not after the economic dream world that we've been living in for the past few decades has been presented to us in a constant stream of corporate-controlled media hype, gloss, and dissembling. So how do we start getting people unplugged from this economic matrix and realizing the world we're really in, seeing it for what it really is, and deciding based on that real information what we really want and the direction that we want to move in as a society? Well, the best way to start going about that is to start countering the propaganda. Of course, again, this is a lengthy and difficult process, but it must be done, and as concerned citizens, we must do our part. Now, of course, the most basic thing that anyone can do is to simply engage others in conversation. But, of course, we have to be informed ourselves about the real issues in order to engage people, hopefully draw out some of their ideas, and show how it's directly contradicted by the evidence. Of course, this being the age of Barack Obama, it might be fruitful for people to start confronting others based on what they think they know about how Barack Obama is going to save us from this economic mess and what the actual case really is. Of course, it always helps to point out to people that, quite contrary to many people's beliefs, Barack Obama was in fact one of the most ardent supporters of the now multi-trillion dollar banker bailout bill, which so far is topping over $10 trillion in total expenses, although it's still referred to as the $700 billion banker bailout bill. And now, of course, the stimulus bill, which we talked about in the Real News section of last week's podcast, in which... Barack Obama stressed that he had to have this legislation on his desk by Monday, necessitating the Congress not being able to read the bill before they passed it, and then, of course, going on a four-day vacation where he couldn't sign the bill. Again, these are the types of pieces of information which will at least get people questioning whether Barack Obama is really the savior who's going to single-handedly get us out of this economic turmoil. Once someone is questioning that fairy tale, that's the time to start hitting them with the real facts. Now, again, when we say real facts, we the pieces of information that actually have a bearing on reality and not the ridiculous childlike fairy tale that we're told to believe in. So, once again, like in episode 63, All Hail President Brzezinski, where we started to deconstruct the Obama myth by looking at the people backing President Obama... We could once again look at the people backing President Obama in an economic sense. And one way to start doing that would be to take a look at the people he's appointed to various economic positions, both cabinet level and others in his administration. One way to go about doing this that anyone, even people who have no sound understanding of economic principles, can easily grasp is to point them to an article like this one from Infowars.com, February 25th, 2009, 
Rahm Emanuel doesn't pay taxes, so why should you? Quote, Of course, if you don't pay taxes to the government, chances are you will be arrested and thrown in the clinker. Not so in the case of Rahm Emanuel, Obama's chief of staff. Emanuel's brazen tax evasion is nothing new, although the corporate media does not bother to cover it. However, as we close in on tax day, the story is worth revisiting. Millionaire Rahm created a handy-dandy charity in order to avoid paying property taxes on his Chicago residence. According to the Cook County Assessor's website, the Chicago home of four-term Democrat congressman and likely new White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel doesn't exist. While the address of 4228 North Hermitage is listed as Emanuel's residence on the Illinois State Board of Elections website, there seems to be no public record of Emanuel ever paying property taxes on this home, Wright Soup reported last November, shortly after the election. It isn't a real charity, though, or at least not a serious one. The Rahm Emanuel and Amy Rule Charitable Trust was formed in 2002 when the Chicago lawmaker was first elected. The former Clinton White House aide and his wife, Amy Rule, are its only donors. Emanuel and other bureaucrats apparently don't have the time or desire to fill out and file the sort of paperwork you and I take for granted. That is, not unless you relish the idea of the IRS on your back. Earlier this month, the media covered the tax problems of yet another Obama appointee, Labor Secretary-designate Hilda L. Solis. Solis followed Treasury Secretary Geithner, Services Secretary-designate Daschle and Nancy Killifer, Obama's choice to be the first performance chief officer, all with similar tax problems. Don't expect Rahm Emanuel, Nancy Pelosi, Tim Geithner, Evan Bay, and other minions of the elite to pay their fair share. After all, taxes are for the little people. End quote. Again, that's a good way to start getting people introduced to this information. Another way would be to take a look at specific individuals and the way they have played roles in the past and the way they are now being dredged up and recycled to take on important roles in the Obama administration. One example of that would, of course, be Paul Volcker. And, of course, you can look to an ABC News blog from November 26, 2008, to find out that Volcker had indeed been appointed in November 2008 to chair the President's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. So what are Volcker's credentials to be appointed to such a high-level position? Well, one of them is that he's generally wrong. This comes from an article by Janet Tavacoli on the Women on the Web at www.com from 25th of February 2009. Quote, Paul Volcker, former U.S. Federal Reserve Board chairman and member of President Obama's economic advisory team, gave a speech in Toronto on February 11th at the Grano Salon Speaker Series on the U.S. economic crisis. He made the mistake of blaming mathematical models instead of malfeasance as the key source of the financial meltdown. They thought financial markets obeyed mathematical laws. They have found out differently now. You know, they all said these events happen once every hundred years, but we have once every hundred years events happening every year or two, which tells me something is the matter with the analysis. Volcker was only partly right. There is something wrong with his analysis. The models would have failed to capture unexpected hundred-year events, the outliers Mr. Volcker referred to in his speech, but that was not the cause of the U.S. financial meltdown. 
there were no outliers. There were outright liars. The models crunched misleading data fed to them by Wall Street's financiers. The events that keep happening every year or two are the effects of massive, unchecked malfeasance. The global meltdown was not caused by an unfortunate mistake. It was caused by malicious mischief. Every problem related to the current financial meltdown was discoverable in the course of competent work. Our financial malaise was caused by bad behavior deliberately hidden behind the opaque veil of models and hard-to-pronounce financial products like collateralized debt obligations and credit derivatives. There is no innocent explanation, and the problem was massive. Wall Street knew about predatory lending, easy money, risky loans, over-leveraged homeowners, misleading loan documents, failed business models, over-leveraged hedge fund clients, shoddy ratings on Wall Street deals, and more. Any finance professional worth their salt knew the data being fed the models in no way represented the risk. End quote. That's quite a hard-hitting article, and one that I would suggest listeners check out in its entirety by following the link from the documentation section. Of course, another way to get some information about Volcker specifically would be to pick up a copy of Webster Tarpley's Obama, the Postmodern Coup, in which he wrote about Volcker and his possible role in the Obama administration before the Obama administration had even come into existence. Quoting from Obama, the Postmodern Coup by Webster Tarpley, quote, Another member of the Trilateral Commission who was to play an important role during the Carter years was Paul Adolf Volcker, who was appointed by Carter to be the boss of the Federal Reserve System in 1979. In conformity with the Controlled Disintegration Program of the Trilateral Commission, Volcker hiked the prime lending rate of U.S. banks to 22% devastating the U.S. industrial base and destroying the expert economy of this country. The Volcker interest rate policy precipitated a severe recession, which helped to guarantee that Carter could not be re-elected. As a result of Carter's defeat by Ronald Reagan in 1980, the United States entered a period of a dozen years of extreme political reaction, rout of the labor movement, declining standards of living, skyrocketing national debt, and general political despair known as Mourning in America. This method of examining the candidate's handlers, advisors, and controllers has proven over the years to be by far the most reliable one in predicting the future behavior of an American presidential administration. End quote. Once again, I suggest my listeners purchase a copy of Obama, the Postmodern Coup, for more of Webster Griffin Tarpley's excellent and informative analysis of the Obama administration and what it does intend to do, based not on what Obama chose to tell the public during the campaign, but based on what his handlers and advisors and the, those people backing him have actually done in previous administrations. But let's return to the point that what is happening in the economy is not the result of random chance or mistaken models or just a general goof-up. What has been taking place in the economy is a controlled implosion, which is going to benefit the bankers who have been calling for more power. This is a point that we have made time and time and time again, but a point that is absolutely central to an understanding of what is happening in the economy today and the way it is likely to play out. 
Once again, we have to understand the enemy's attack pattern and how they are going to use this crisis to call for global regulatory control. Now, one person who is making a very articulate and informed case that this is indeed happening, a controlled implosion of the economy, is Michel Chosodovsky. Michel Chosodovsky is the founder of the Center for Research on Globalization, and his excellent and informative website is globalresearch.ca. From the front page of that website, you can find a link to a video of a lecture that Michel Chosodovsky delivered in Montreal recently on the current economic crisis. I would highly recommend that my listeners check that out to better inform themselves and hopefully better inform others about what is really happening and what is really at stake in the current economic crisis. But right now, let's take a listen to a short extract from that lecture by Michel Chosodovsky, in which he very forcefully makes the point that what is happening in the economy is a controlled demolition, not the result of random chance. And uh, finally, we have uh, the media conglomerates, uh, the media communications conglomerates, which are very important in uh, framing our, our understanding of what actually is happening. And in this regard, the media have a tendency both to trivialize and distort the mechanisms underlying this financial crisis in the same way as they distort our understanding of what's happening in the Middle East. And they have a way of turning realities upside down. I think recent events in Gaza, uh, I think, corroborate that, that understanding that that the, the victims are the aggressors and the aggressors are the victims. And in financial matters, they have ways of presenting the financial institutions, the big banks, as being, in fact, the victims, when, in fact, the victims is the broader public, the people who, whose savings have been, have been uh, uh, confiscated through devious financial mechanisms, and, uh, and where ultimately we are given, I mean, if we look at the various assessments of this crisis by the conference board, by the Ministry of Finance, by the think tanks, as, not to mention the economics profession, we, we have a very graphic understanding of, of what, what is actually happening, where somehow... Um, there's an economic movement, a downturn, and inevitably we're going to go up again. Okay? That's called the theory of the business cycle. It doesn't work that way. Uh, it doesn't work that way, and there's nothing spontaneous in these movements. The movements on the stock market, on the money markets, are heavily manipulated, and they are manipulated uh, largely as a result of what we, what we understand as derivative trade. It's the it's the capability that these financial institutions, as well as powerful individuals, or um, institutions which are not necessarily visible within the financial architecture, such, such as the hedge funds, to, uh, to uh, trigger uh, upward and downward movements in a speculative onslaught where they can, they can speculate in an upward movement, and then they can speculate in the downward movement 
They know when the turning point is going to occur because they are also, they have the foresight, the knowledge, as well as the ability to, to trigger major shifts in direction. Uh, if, you, if you follow the currency markets in last few weeks, where you see the Canadian dollar going, uh, going up and down, it's, uh, incidentally it's going down. Today it's, da it's at 124 Canadian dollars to the, to the US dollar, and last week it was 118 or 119. There's absolutely no logic, economic logic, to these short-term swings. They are speculative movements, uh, and, and there's, there's money to be made, as I said. Uh, we, often we talk about short selling. Uh, these are operations which don't necessarily correspond to an actual transaction. You can make the stock market go up and down without necessarily buying or selling. And, uh, uh, and uh, of course, disinformation concerning financial movements, which is then inserted into, into the circuit of financial uh, and economic news, will, uh, has the ability of triggering, of course, uh, major collapses. Uh, and uh, let us be under no illusion, there are powerful interests behind uh, this process, and there are powerful interests behind, uh, the, uh, behind the movement of these, uh, of these financial indicators. Michelle Chosodovsky of globalresearch.ca. Now, of course, the information that we've encountered so far is of the utmost importance and extremely serious. Indeed, how could it be otherwise, given our knowledge that this controlled demolition of the economy has been designed to bring about a structure which would make the furtherance of world government a very real possibility? And of course, listeners to this podcast know that world government is not the lovely, flowery, rosy image that is often portrayed in the controlled corporate media, but is in fact an utter global dictatorship of the corporate interests who already control each national government. But of course, as G. Edward Griffin pointed out earlier in today's episode, the mission of those who are aware of this process and what is happening must be to educate others to effect that awakening, the revolution of the mind, which will be the only thing that can avert this coming world oligarchy. If we are to effect an awakening, obviously the point is to get this message to the people. And although the information so far presented from such experts and analysts like Ron Paul, Peter Schiff, G. Edward Griffin, and Michelle Chosodovsky, although that information is extremely important and we must try to get that out to anyone who is willing to listen, unfortunately the public has become accustomed to having their poisoned information from the controlled corporate media sweetened with a sickly, sugary, syrupy coating that is an entertaining gloss that the corporate controlled media has become so adept at pouring all over their infotainment. Of course, the obvious example in the economic field would be the mad ravings of a lunatic like Jim Cramer, whose bellicose ravings may be entertaining to listen to, but of course, ultimately lead one down that path of more control for the bankers. So is there anyone on our side who's able to capture the mind of the public and present this information in an entertaining and effective manner? Well... Let me introduce to those who have not already heard him or encountered him before, 
Max Kaiser. Max Kaiser has a lengthy and impressive biography, including having been the inventor in the 1990s of virtual specialist technology and prediction markets like the Hollywood Stock Exchange. He's a TV presenter, a radio host, an entrepreneur, a broadcaster, a journalist, a writer for Al Jazeera English and the Huffington Post, a former Wall Street broker, a radio talk show host, and much else besides who has an uncanny knack for presenting this truth about the economy in a way that many people would find accessible. One of his latest ventures is The Oracle with Max Kaiser, a BBC World News program that airs every Friday and has been doing so since the 9th of January of this year. Of course, this is an incredible breakthrough with this type of information becoming mainstream almost instantaneously by virtue of the fact that it is on BBC World News with a potential audience of 180 million people around the globe. So this is indeed a very exciting breakthrough opportunity. For those who haven't heard Max Kaiser before, he's a very engaging and entertaining speaker as well as someone who is obviously extremely well informed about the key and important issues affecting the economy right now. In order to facilitate an introduction to Max Kaiser for those listeners who may not have heard him before, allow me to play a short clip from The Oracle, from the last episode of The Oracle on Friday the 20th of February. That episode's in-studio guests included Andy Zaltzman and Leo Johnson, and included this memorable exchange. Stacy, the world wants to know what will happen to America's wealth. Well, Max, according to the headlines this week, yes, the wealth rise in U.S. was an illusion, the Fed reports. And Newsweek is reporting we are all socialists now. Now, this first headline came on page 13 of the New York Times, the Herald Tribune. Wealth rise was an illusion, the Fed reports, that in fact, the seemingly healthy 17% rise in wealth between 2004 and 2007 was but an illusion. In fact, Americans are 3.2% poorer. Okay, this is fascinating. In other words, all the wealth of the past 10, 15 years, the Greenspan era, was an illusion. Andy, yes or no? What? It's an illusion? Uh, yes, well, I think this is probably the best way to go about it. Pretend money is much more satisfying than real money. And in many ways, it's better to live in an illusory world. If you've got two men, one of whom thinks he's about to be eaten by a pterodactyl but isn't, and the other who doesn't think he's about to be eaten by a pterodactyl but is, that latter man is going to be happier and therefore spend more of his money boosting the economy. So we need more fiction in, dec in economics if we want to get out of the problems that fiction has got us into. More imaginary pterodactyls, if I understand correctly. But you've, you'll find very few politicians who have the courage to go with a policy like that. Yeah, well, I can't imagine down there at the dispatch box in the House of Commons that we need no imaginary pterodactyls. Well, Leo Johnson, uh, imaginary pterodactyls, is that your prescription? That remind, there was a student group at the Sorbonne in Paris, here in Paris, recently, who actually rose up as one against their economics professors. And they said, the economics you are teaching us, it is autistic economics. Right. And they marched down the Boulevard Saint-Germain under a banner that read, we wish to escape from imaginary worlds. And the world we have been living in is an economic fiction. That's what true. What we're seeing is the reality has started to come back in. 
That well for the fiction, the poverty will be real. Yeah, but it was working fine while it was just a fiction. It was when you put a bit of reality <laughs> and that the whole thing collapsed. That little sand. Did you just need to take the reality? Sand of reality. It's hard to get it back out. Back Here into it is. The, into the <laughs> this is the economic model of the Greenspan era. It's called blowing bubbles. This is all that they did for 25 years after Reagan became president. Blowing bubbles. And as you see, these bubbles pop. Yeah, but they're pretty while they're floating, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. like, I'd invest in it's them. It's not even I would definitely it's sinking slowly. <laughs> it's sinking fast. It's worse than your bubble. Well, I mean, this is the point, though, is that money became uh, something that had absolutely no banking. Starting with the early 70s, the U.S. went on the, off the gold standard. It became a fiat money currency system driving the world. And then during the uh, Bush years, investment banks decided they could securitize this fake money and resell it over and over again, so you ended up creating this multi-hundred trillion dollar derivatives pyramid of faulty nothingness. It's like imaginary pyramids of nothing and then hence the Bernie Madoffs of the world and all these other Ponzi schemes. What is a Ponzi scheme but the revelation that the economy is pure fiction? Uh, do you see more Ponzi schemes happening, Andy? Uh, is well, it in your book, by the way? We should uh, well, I get a shot of Andy's place. book right here. There, get a good Rodrigo shot. This is Andy's uh, latest classic. Does anything eat bankers? I'm, I'm, you're the first person who's described it as a classic, Max. I'm Instant classic. <laughs> uh, well, I hope there's more Ponzi scheme, just because I quite like the word Ponzi. I hope that conveys at least some of the energy and entertainment and wit of Max Kaiser. But in order to get a better understanding of Max Kaiser, where he's coming from, and what he hopes to achieve with his television program, I contacted Max Kaiser recently at his office in Paris. We had a brief conversation, unfortunately interrupted by a bad Skype connection, in which we talked about his new program and also some of his background. Let's listen to a short excerpt from our conversation, which is now available for download from the website, CorbettReport.com. All right, well, Max Kaiser, start by um, introducing yourself for the listeners. Um, talk a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I've been involved in markets and finance for 25 years. I started out on Wall Street in the early 1980s at the beginning of the bull market. And I've also had an inter interest in the intersection of finance and theater. I was a theater major at New York University. And um, I was interested in the theatrics of Wall Street. And um, this led to the creation of the Hollywood Stock Exchange back in the mid-90s as the intersection of really theater and Wall Street. And we've done some programming to this end. We do the Truth About Markets on Resonance 104.4 in London. We do a daily podcast. And now we do the Oracle on BBC World News, which is uh, news before it happens. Anyone who follows markets knows typically that price precedes news, that news has already been discounted in the price on many markets. So if you understand how markets work, you can pretty well guess what the news is going to be. So we try to predict the news before it happens using that particular insight. And the show's been up for a couple of months. And uh, I think it's a good anecdote to shows like uh, James Kramer's Mad Money or Rick Santelli, who uh, is doing a lot of broadcasting from the floor of uh, the Bond Futures Pit uh, for CNBC. You know, those guys are heavily weighted toward the right, right-wing uh, politics and economics. The Oracle tries to restore some balance to the global discussion on economics and finance by exploring the other side of, of the debate. Um, for example, Rick Santelli 
uh, over there at CNBC was uh, ranting about the um, Obama's um, relief package for uh, mortgage owners, uh, homeowners, and yet um, failed to mention that, of course, this comes on top of a multi-hundred billion dollar bailout of bankers like Rick Santelli's friends. So he's completely hypocritical, in my opinion. And on the show this week, coming up for show number eight, we're going to be playing Rick Santelli's video as well as James Kramer's video from the Mad Money Meltdown of 18 months ago uh, and put those things in perspective for the global audience. You know, we go out to 180 million people. It's the widest uh, watched uh, network in the world, BBC World News. Well, that's excellent. In fact, I've been following your work for some time, but I had no idea that you were a theater major. Although a lot of the pieces of the puzzle sort of come into place when I find out that information. Certainly you have a, a very uh, theatrical style of presentation. So um, let, let's talk a little bit about the Oracle. Who are some of the guests that you've had on recently and, and what have been some of the highlights so far for you? Well, we had uh, James Galbraith on a couple of weeks ago and um, had him be a satellite coming in from Austin, Texas. And he was um, providing some really good insights. We've had uh, Alec Baldwin was on the show number one, my friend, for of a long time. Um, that was exciting. Now, this past week that we just taped airing today, Leo Johnson, who's um, an economist and a business and a businessman, he's um, just been involved in creating and selling a, uh, a company that's involved in sustainable finance tied into these matters, which is, um, you know, uh, coming from a place more of social observation. You know, comedians tend to be very good social observers, and they're the front line of the cultural zeitgeist in many ways. And the insights you've seen in, in the works of uh, stand-up comedian is really reflective of society at large. So by juxtaposing some stand-up comedians with hardcore economists, we, we, we cover a lot of material. But the, um, the hard part is to get it to all come together on the show and work as a seamless blend. And I think so far we've been pretty successful in doing that. I would suggest, of course, that my listeners check out Max Kaiser and his work at maxkaiser.com. And from there, you'll find links to some of his numerous other websites, including some of his writings on the Huffington Post, Al Jazeera, and other outlets. Suffice it to say, Max Kaiser is one of those who are making this type of information fun and accessible without diluting the message. The message, of course, as always, is that this economic collapse is being controlled and it is being steered so that the logical outcome in the uninformed public's minds would be a global government. We are being conditioned to accept the premise that a world central bank and a world government is the inevitable conclusion of this economic catastrophe, and we must fight against that. Again, I leave this up to you as to how best to go about doing it. This is an extremely difficult process that, as G. Edward Griffin says, optimistically will take one or two generations to effect a true awakening in the general public's mind to this information. But we must nevertheless press ahead and attempt to effect that awakening now. Of course, the only way to do this is by educating yourself so that you know and understand these issues and educating others. I leave you at this point to begin doing your own research and, of course, suggesting Ron Paul, G. Edward Griffin, 
Michelle Chosodovsky, Peter Schiff, and Max Kaiser as possible starting points for that research. But again, regardless of who you find personally to be the most on-target or the most effective or the most interesting presenters of this information, I leave it to you to get this information out to other people. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me once again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. I used to think that Freddie Mac was a pimp But now my mutual fund is the one walking with a limp And Fannie Mae, you almost failed me, boo but the faithful feds, they bailed you. Poor Lehman Brothers, y'all got the shaft. Shaft! The government said, good luck with that. Shaft! And AIG, old Uncle Sam, he loaned you. Eighty-five billion. But now he owns you Some cry out We become a socialist state While others say We need to regulate Should I vote McCain Or pull the lever for Obama I'm thinking either way I'll be moving back in with mama But the cooking's good And I think she'll drive me to work Save money on groceries and gas You see, I don't have much job security I'm an internet comedian I'm not even sure if that's technically a job I don't think it is I can't put my finger on it But you know I feel that we need to get into the sum and substance of this in a huge way. So the meat of it, the carnivorous way to kind of dig our way into this point in such a way that the viewers out there are touched emotionally mm -hmm. and they have a visceral response. They get on the phone and they say, Mom, Dad, watch the Oracle. I'm having a visceral response. And Mom and Dad mm -hmm. hang up and they say, No, you can't live with us. <laughs> Go well, get a job. Go get dad. a job. Go get a job. You can't live with us. Go get a job. Cool. That's what Mom and Dad are saying. Because this generation has been abandoned. They've been abandoned. This generation has been abandoned. Abandoned. Rise up.